the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Just want to throw out, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. We have had several recent patrons hop on. We really appreciate the support. Today, Taylor and I are going to be taking a look at Freud's On Narcissism, published in 1914. I guess to start us off, Taylor, what uh, you suggested this text to me, and I think as a as a sort of proper lead into it, a future episode we're going to be doing about AI and psychoanalysis, Isabel Millar. I'm kind of curious what what was the driving? Why did you suggest this text in particular, other than yeah. the shortness? Because we wanted something, you know, shorter. I think was a big <laughs> was right. a big quantifier. I mean, considering his essays, this is maybe more actually longer than some of his essays. You know, as we've talked about. You know, um, a lot of his essays are specifically addressing like one point, not all of them, but this is so, I mean, it's a good size, right? It's, it's 30 pages. Yeah, we it's, usually like to try to go about two hours. And right. Even if we don't cover everything, we're not going to run out of material, especially yeah. if we are able to use Freud as a springboard, right? which I know that we like to do. Yeah. And, but I do know that you know, early, early Lacan, you know, in his first two seminars, his, his seminar on uh, Freud's papers on technique, right, which is generally addressing the transference and things like this, defenses and resistance, etc. How, what better seminar to start with than one, a kind of a meta training seminar, because uh, Lacan always said that he's, he's trying to train uh, analysts. And so this return to Freud is, this is where he does specifically point out on narcissism as this pivotal text. And, you know, I've read it a few times, but when I re when I read the seminar one a couple months ago, I revisited this text and saw that it, it really did have a lot of, as just one self-contained, even though it's overflowing on all sides with these conceptual developments, it's like, it would be a good text to just do a, uh, you know, an episode on. And, and then of course, in seminar two on, you know, on the ego and in, in Freud, on narcissism is like a privileged place. And I believe Lacan just alludes to that it's, you know, there, you're always going to find something new coming back to this text, that, that it's, it really is. And now I think that that led Freud to be a little bit embarrassed. I, he, in the editor's note to this essay, you know, for just kind of starting sequentially and logically with this text in the editor's introduction, there's this interesting claim, you know, Freud wrote this letter, I believe it was to Abraham, one of his students, where he says, um, he says, quote, the narcissism, talk about the paper, had a difficult labor and bears all the marks of a corresponding deformation. He's kind of using a 
he's using a pregnancy metaphor, right? That he like had this, he had to give birth to this kind of monster. And that's at least the initial feelings because it wasn't received in the way that he expected it to and expected it to be. And I think that's just because it, it really, I mean, the, the full title is on narcissism and introduction. So he really is opening all these different paths. And he, in many ways, if his intentions was to answer a lot of questions that may have been lingering on the horizon and to introduce some, you know, this new notion of this kind of flux, this influx and outflux of, you know, ego libido and object libido, which, which constitutes this pivotal turn towards the later Freud. I think that it may not have gone over as well because it seems to raise as many, if not more problems and questions that it answers, which doesn't mean that it's bad. I think, I just think that for him, he, you know, in his mind thinking that I'm, you know, I've got to set things straight and put things in place and put them on solid foundations. He was probably hoping that it would settle more questions and it seemed to raise more. And that's just, I think that's just a consequence of the productivity of his thought less than, but, but again, his, maybe his ego was a little wounded and injured, you know, um, yeah. which, you know, he, he, cause of course he wants to be the, uh, the authority figure, at least at right. this point in his stage, yeah. um, you know, in his writing. I think it is interesting to that point though, how I guess sort of uh, not quite obsequious he is in these shorter pieces where he's, I don't know. I like that you mentioned this previously, I think maybe in terms of uh, uh, beyond the pleasure principle, how like he kind of qualifies his whole critique or like these statements that he makes in these essays. You said obsequiousness. Uh, you mean his like tentativeness, or, right. or like he he's kind of acknowledging like yeah, you know these are the these are the limits from which I'm speaking. Right, he's kind of acknowledging. Right. I don't know. He's being upfront in terms of you know what are the weaknesses of this analysis that I'm doing. Right. You know, obviously, I I'm speculating based on you know interactions with patients. Right. This is not yes. necessarily like hard hard scientific data, but you can at the same time just throw out all of this clinical experience that I've had, you know, I, I like that you bring that up. And he, I mean, he does state that a few pages in he, he does this thing and you could see this, right. I mean, I just talked about his potential narcissism and his big ego. He obviously right, right. had a healthy ego he, yeah. and wanted to kind of be the symbolic super ego to a certain extent for the psychoanalytic institution. Yeah, exactly. But, but he does say some things that he will echo in beyond the pleasure principle and that he'll also echo in a text that's kind of around this period called instincts and their vicissitudes. Yeah. Right. Which I, we should read that sometime because I, know and I think it's a good text. Times. It's a good companion. It's a good companion text. The quick point is that there in both texts, what, what it reminds me of this one besides the content is you could call it tentativeness, but also his his point being that science has to begin with, uh, ideally, like science begins with these less well-defined conceptual frameworks right. and these attempts, literally these essays, right? These attempts, these provisional, these provisionalities. Yeah. And it can't, it shouldn't in the speculative philosophy and speculations 
for their freedom, so to speak, to to erect systems, at, at, you know, dis, uh, disregarding empirical observation, because as you said, he's trying to answer these questions or at least provide more insight into these questions concerning, you know, the, the patients that he's dealing with in his practice, right? And these, uh, he's trying to refine these differentiating between, say, neurosis and psychosis, which is not only the, the, the purview of Lacan's third seminar on the psychosis, but also what we see Freud really beginning to engage with three years earlier from this text in 1911 with the Schreber case, right? Which, which is what we've discussed kind of for weeks now. We keep kind of circling around Schreber's solar anus. And um, so Freud is trying to- Circling the drain as it were. Yeah, yeah he's, he, he's thinking more about psychosis. He's thinking more about, he's also thinking more about, you know, nosographical definitions. What I mean by that is Freud always, had a kind of anal particularity about how can we distinguish this type of group of symptoms from this other type, you know, so he's wanting to classify, right. These different types of syndromes he's had that. I mean, he, he's always been interested in not just the classificatory aspect of psychoanalysis, but also the etiological aspect or the, the sort of the, the study of causes here. I think it's, I think he's kind of trying to do both and maybe doesn't, you know, fully emphasize either because you do see him in this text moving in these stages. So I think he is trying to do two birds with one stone and, and maybe he felt like he didn't succeed as much. We'll get into that. I mean, we, I think that um, whether or not he obviously, this text obviously doesn't like settle the, the issue. I do think yeah. that it's, it's, as I said earlier, it's kind of the springboard for um, it's a springboard for like addressing these problems with with new conceptual innovations, and it also, I guess, it also it serves really to help us connect the dots back from where we started with when we started doing some deeper dives into Freud with Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and then the Schreber case. So I think this is a, a pivotal text that that can help to trace the path we get from the Schreber case, which we did second up to, you know, the beyond the pleasure principle, some 10 years later. So this is kind of that, this middle text that, that shows the arc that Freud started to take around. Well, I mean, if this is published in 1914, right, you have on the horizon, the, uh, the first world war, which isn't addressed here, but is addressed in beyond the pleasure principle. Right. We 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 do have that little chapter in that book about specifically about the what he calls the war neuroses, which I think he was using as a loose term to describe some of the uh, some of what we might call PTSD and things like that. That goes back to your original question is, is kind of why I think this is an exciting text and why it's it's helpful for us to connect some dots and to continue uh, ruminating on these these things that we've been we, we've been discussing. It's kind of funny just in the sense of, like I said, it's not obsequious is probably too strong, but like he's hedging his, he's hedging himself a bit in terms of his claims. Right. And you're saying like he had, he certainly has this desire to be this big figure, the phallus of psychoanalysis. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of funny. It's almost mentioning, you know, 
narcissism as this sort of almost defense against whatever, right? So it's funny to see Freud with this healthy ego sort of almost defend, he's defending himself. Yeah. In a I, sense, I think like that, he's being, you know what I mean? My, right. In the sense of the lady doth protest too much. Right? Oh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's a metaphor that Freud likes to use and he uses it, if not for the first time in this paper, this is one of the more famous times he uses it where he describes an amoeba putting out the pseudopods in order to feel out the external world, right? And then draws them back in. This is kind of the metaphor he uses for, for this distinction he will make and we'll, we'll talk about more about ego libido and object libido, right? And I think that he was always, because of his interest in the neuroses, he was always, you know, interested in this notion of investing or connecting objects with libido and by objects, it's also, also it's quite broad because in the transference neurosis, you see what happens in the analytic situation, a neurotic begins in, in the talking cure begins to rely on, I say rely, begins to interact in a kind of dialectic with the analyst and the analyst becomes a kind of substitute for these earlier identifications, right? These parental identifications, for example, chiefly, you know, the father figure, for example, right? And so in that sense, the analyst becomes the object invested with libido and Freud in the papers on technique is trying to stress the need for the, for the analyst not to give in to that kind of cathexis and investment from the, from the patient because it can lead to disastrous results, right? There has to be this kind of state objectivity and uh, what the, you know, what the, what the patient is looking for is a kind of reciprocation from the analyst to recognize their love and to reflect it back because they, they have put out so much object libido. They have invested so much into objects. Their ego is kind of deprived and impoverished. And by being loved back from the analyst or by being accepted, right. As you know, if the analyst stands in for the super ego or this critical agency, this, you know, this parental agency and can, and can give approval and love back and all this stuff. Like you're doing well, your ego is strengthening. That's what they're looking for when Freud knows that this is a shortcut that we, that you, that one can't take less, less the whole endeavor collapse. And Freud himself is pretty honest with some of his earliest case cases, like the Dora case that not being aware of the, ebb and flow the the or the reciprocal the transference from the the patient but also his the analyst's counter transference back like not being aware of the counter transference led to that that case being abruptly ended that that freud um this is partly why he is you know this this gets back to your first point about why he is a little tentative to say you know, psychoanalysis is not a perfect science, but ideally in the future, it could be based on more and more well-grounded conceptual edifices and thereby prevent some of the, well, we could say it's kind of like it's growing pains, right? That we could say Freud experienced with some of these early cases where he he's kind of exploring this new domain of the unconscious. And they're, you know, he's, he's pretty honest about when he stumbles. Something that he says, I think even early on within the essay itself that I thought was quite interesting. I mean, get, going back towards our 
discussions of libidinal economy is this idea that narcissism is libidinal. And he says, yes. in sense, it's in this way, it's not, a, it's not a perversion. Yeah. This is an interesting point, right? Cause he will initially define narcissism in the very first paragraph up front as when the subject or just someone takes pleasure in their own body, takes their own body as, as an object, right? So he's alluding to, if we want to think about the namesake of nar- on narciss- or narcissism, we, we obviously think back to Greek myth, to Narcissus, the story of, you know, this excessive egoism of Narcissus who, who isn't able to, or is reluctant to, or even just immune to, um, investing into loved objects right he it's all it's all him until he finds his image in the in the pond or in the mirror right as as lacan would say and <laughs> but that 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 obviously there's a there's a moral to the to the greek myth because what happens is narcissus falls in and drowns so there is this danger of overconfecting hyperconfecting the ego and the imaginary um identification and love for oneself that 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 is destructive in in a sense in which it it doesn't allow for collective sublimations or whatever you want to say right um uh, you know i don't we don't have to focus too much on the myth but but the consequence of narcissus his death and his hyperconnexus of his ego and all this is uh we get a mythological origin of of the flower right of the narcissus flower right and it's this symbol of of beauty and enticement and, and all the these things these are all just kind of indications for where the the name comes from but to get to your point you know freud wants to say that a an element of narcissism is involved in all normal right right you know Quote yes. We also put scare quotes, right. normal. Um, Developmental sort yes. of. Yes. Almost and, mirror stage, which right. is, that's sort of the good little funny metaphor with mirror stage from Lacan. And right. So yeah, there's a reflection, mirror, the myth, the mythology of it. This is important to, to emphasize the question of development, because if we think about the fact that if we think about certain, if we look on, might call them phases later in his life, but we can use the word stages. If we think about sort of stages of the development of the ego, obviously when the child is born, there is no ego and there's also no unconscious. It's a kind of inchoate. Uh, everything's either kind of merged together. It's not, there's not a differentiation of functions, right? There's no super ego. There's, you could say that, that it's all id, but really without the other two agencies, that distinction becomes a little bit moot, right? And um, with the infant, with we, what we have is what he calls autoeritism, right? And that's important for understanding that, you know, sexuality hasn't kicked in. We haven't had puberty. We haven't had the differentiation, even of this, of sexual zones, centered on like on the genitals, right? That's obviously an adult or a quote unquote normal adult development. So at the beginning, the infant's body is for him, he calls it, it's a state of polymorphous perversity, right? So any 
the erogenous zones are multiple uh, and really the body isn't unified. It's just a whole sort of fragmented multiplicity of these, of these zones. And um, one of the primary zones though, is for example, the, in the fact that we're born premature, right. And we need four years for a caregiver, but also for a, for a nurturer, right. Like right. the mother or her substitute, we need someone to give us, you know, milk or some sort of substance. So the, one of the first arousal zones is obviously the mouth and um, the drive to suck and to take in milk, which is nourishing, um, but it's also pleasurable. And we'll get into this a little bit later. For both, but this, yeah. And yeah, for both. For both mother mother right. and baby, and almost that same kind of, like we said, uh, that in the context of surplus. Right. Suissance. Yeah, surplus suissance, that's right, on both sides. And I guess that all, all I'll say about er- er- autoerotism at this point is, you know, the child at this point doesn't even recognize objects, right? Or, or, or other subjects, or even itself as a subject, right? Prior to the mirror stage, it's just a, it's a sucking, shitting, peeing <laughs> machine, breathing right. machine. It's a bunch of partial drives that are, the main goal is obviously self-preservation. That's the strongest self-preservation right. drive. Which ties so into the, this notion yeah. of narcissism as a function, as a right. quote unquote normal function. So what he'll say is that the self-preservative drives and the sexual drives are not yet distinguished. Right. And they have they're, not they're kind split of, off. They're yeah, they're intermingled. And this is what he calls um, you know, I know that Strachey calls it anaclytic. We'll get into <laughs> that kind of stuff. But it's really just about the fact that initially the sexual drive is propped up, leans on the um the self-preservative drive, and they're not fully distinguished. And so that's autoerotism, right? This multiplicity of erogenous zones, polymorphous perversity. And then we could say, since we brought in Lacan, you have the mirror stage. And this is where the fragmented body of the child from six to 18 months sees its image in the mirror and what's imaginarily identified with in this dialectic of the introduction of the eye you know, um, as Lacan calls it, is this imaginary unity and totality of the body. This is where that, that, this is where we start to see some different, we start to see a move progressively from autoerotism to what we could call, what we could call primary narcissism. I'm going to leave out the sadomasochistic stuff. That's, we could, that, that's for another essay and that's for Laplanche, but I'm simplifying to say that this is where we can start to see a primary narcissism. And for, I think the easiest way to talk about that with Freud is primary narcissism is merely the libidinal complement of self-preservation, right? So where self-preservation is, is, is a drive that all sort of animal life and one could say even plant life share in, you have with primary narcissism, now you're starting to see a libidinal stage proper take form out of the chaos of the, of the autoerotic polymorphousness, perversity, right? So I think this is why for Freud, you know, he wants to say that normal people are more perverse than they think they are and perver- perversion and perverse people are more normal than they may be. <laughs> and this is why he'll, that's what he would say in three essays on sexuality, you know, nine years earlier. But here he wants to say that in this sense, narcissism is not 
perversion, purely speaking. Right. It's just a, um, it's just the correlate, right? It's the correlate of, of, uh, self it's, it's, kind of, it's almost like, a the representative, he likes to use this terminology of representative. I mean, primary narcissism would be like the representative, the stand in for the spokesperson, if you will, if it could speak for the self-preservative drive after this initial stage, once we start to get into the, the mirror, the mirror stage. Along with that, isn't the mother the first sexual, or at least maybe in this kind of, right, this edible, right, isn't the mother the first object for sexual feelings or sexual impulses, et cetera, in the infant or? This is where it's interesting because, you know, at the start. At least in this essay, I guess. I at, at, the start, at the start with autoerotism, there is no mother or me differentiated, right? It's, it's all kind of breaks flows, as Deleuze Guattari might say. And even in the mirror stage, it's not yet, we're only starting to get to the point where we recognize global persons, right? Where we recognize father, mother. It's after the mirror stage, after the it's really with the culmination of moving from the oral, right? That we started with. If we, if we take the, if we take the dynamic framework, right? Where we have these different stages, right? We have the oral stage, which is really about self-preservation feeding. The next stage is when we actually start to unify the body outside of the, the mirror stage, really we're talking about anal development, right? Which is about being able to, you know, be potty trained, for example, right? And being, and that is where the, this is where we, we start to differentiate the mother as, as nurturer and caregiver and the father as kind of the, the symbol of the law. And this is what begins to be called the latency period. This is where we have the incubation of Oedipus complex, castration, all these big terms for the entrance of a person, if you will, the first, the first instances of a unified person in the child entering into the symbolic. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yes, I would say that, that it's, we have to be careful about saying that, that, that the mother is the first sexual object because at first really it's just partial objects. Right. The breast, um, et cetera. Yes. And we only get to global persons a little bit later, but yes, for Freud, um, with the male child, it is supposedly the mother who is, this is when we start talking about castration Oedipus because it's first the mother that is the desired object. We want to take the place of the father symbolically and give her a gift back because we want to be loved. We want to give her a child or to, to have the phallic symbol, um, which the father doesn't share with us and actually you know, prevents us from having. And that's when the mother is prohibited as a object of our desire. And this is part of the logic of castration and how we deal with as a male in the male child, how we deal with the, the Oedipal complex and the threat of castration, right? Of, you know, if we, if we were to continue trying to cuck our father, so to speak, um, Obviously, for, yeah, maybe for we Freud, can... there's a totally different dialectic with the female child, but he doesn't broach that here. He broached that in, in a couple of other essays. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it might be beneficial to just even kind of like put a sort of define and even a loose sense what castration is. 
at least for Freud or with Freud. I mean, obviously with Lacan, it's more about entrance into the symbolic. He wants to say that Freud makes this (laughs) the same thing. I'll be really quick because with castration, no, it's it's totally cool. I mean, it's important. It is important for this, even if, and he does bring up castration in the middle of the essay, but it's important to think of a few things. You know, he had, I remember the chronology he had recently written Totem and Taboo in 1912-1913. So this is following on Totem and Taboo. I mean, there's a lot going on, but the, the main idea is how we get to incest prohibition, right? If, we, if that's the problem, if that's the question, if that's supposedly the universal of culture, which can be disputed by anthropologists and ethnologists, if we take that as the universal of the incest taboo, how do we get to that, right? How do we get to the prohibition of the mother and, you know, but also this prohibition of murder, which is, which Freud ties in together with this mythologizing because Freud is telling a story. He's telling this myth about, you know, the primal father. There's a primal father of the, of, of, of the horde uh, of the tribe, kind of like the, 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 the alpha lion, right. right? And and he hoards all the women. He has the phallus symbolically, so to speak. And um, he deprives the son. He subjugates them to a certain extent uh, and, and won't share with them his surplus enjoyment of, of women, right? If, you know, um, and they murder him for this, right? In order to gain access to the, to the enjoyment. They are, they are kind of jealous, if you will. They are, but also, so to speak, they're, the species needs to reproduce. So at some point, the primal father was like, you know, you trace it back all the way. The primal father is symbolically always already needing to be killed for, for procreation to occur and, and et cetera you know, reproduction of the species. But so, the, so the, the, the brothers band together, they form a conspiracy against the, the father and they, they overthrow him and they, they murder him. And in doing so, they internalize this guilt um, that they feel and they make this kind of unwritten law, this pact not to, uh, neither to hoard nor to murder, so to speak, each other for their, their greediness, if you will. And they go off and they form their little separate triangular, you know, nuclear families. But the, so the point being is, you know, for Lacan, he might say it, that it's the father hoards the, the phallus and is the one that has the phallus. He has unmediated access to, to the enjoyment of, of jouissance and, and then after his murder, there is this incest taboo instated. That's just kind of the symbolic or, or social collectivity writ large, such that all men entering into the collectivity and the pact no longer have access to the phallus. We have to, it's, a, it's something we never had that we have to give up, right? As Lacan says, you know, Lacan is good at formalizing this stuff symbolically uh, in, in the dialectic and evolution of humanity. And he wants to kind of get rid of some of this mythologizing and, and this other stuff, right? He wants to mathematically formalize it. But for Freud, you know, he's at least at this stage, he is convinced that this, uh, even if it's a kind of an allegory or a myth or, or a story told to explain, he's convinced that this was kind of a real event that happened in the past of the species, right? That 
that it had to have happened in order for civilization to get off the ground. And so in a word, castration is the complex is, um, is, is the, the, you know, in order to sort of be a well-adjusted individual, one has to give up the first person with whom one desires, which is for okay. him generally the mother, right. that the father okay. is. And, and so it is the institution of law, if you, if, you, if you get it. I mean, both for Freud and Lacan, the castration complex is becoming a well-adjusted individual in, in the sense in which we give up this exclusivity to jouissance. We, we become submitted ah. to law and we enter the realm of language. Right. We we enter the that 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 precedes us. And um, now, obviously, Freud, too, uses castration in ways that aren't merely just the superstructural symbolic ways. A lot of times he will take that castration as a threat, whether it be it's usually from a caretaker, whether it be from the mother or the father. But, yeah, it's a threat against to prevent bad behavior. Right. And it can be you know, symbol symbolized for Freud with, you know, um, if you masturbate too much, you'll go blind, right? This is this interesting superstition that's very old and ancient. So you've, you're, you're enjoying yourself too much. This is again, kind of a narcissism thing. And, you know, blindness for Freud is a kind of castration symbolically, but also uh, if you, in the Wolfman case, he tells the story about the Wolfman in an early age sort of displacing his initial love for his mother, realizing that 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 is that object of love is uh, not allowed for him. And it's his nanny that he then starts to act out in. And he like, she's cleaning up his room and he stands up in his crib and, and just pisses right in front of her, right? Takes, reveals, exhibits the male, the little male organ and pisses right in front of her. And she, he, he recalls, to Freud that she threatens him, threatens to cut it off because he's acting out, right? And so you could see too that that the that castration, this is why I brought up the anal stage earlier, right? Because it is, you know, this transition from the anal to the to the phallic stage for for Freud, right? Where the which is concentrated in latency and castration, you see that the threat of castration is against little boys and I assume little girls too, and it'd be a different type of threat, but you see that it's be a well unified, well regulated, regulate your body or you will be, or we'll take away really for Freud. It's that at the stage in which castration comes into play, the, the phallus, the penis for the boy is the symbol of narcissism. That's the thing that he like prides himself most on. And it's also the fact that like the penis is like, I can go to the bathroom by myself. That's a big stage, right? That's a big mm -hmm. event in little boys' lives. Also little girls, right? But you be, you start to get bodily autonomy and these other things. And so castration as a threat is a part of this kind of symbolic threat of the law to say, be a, be a good body, be a good boy or else, right? Or else you will be half a man or- yeah. You will be, you know, you will be excised from the symbolic, right? Or something like that. Hope all that kind of made sense to to discuss castration. Yeah, absolutely. I think even quickly mentioning Lacan's whole notion of law, 
what is it name names of the father too and in, mm-hmm. in the sense of that of the law and anyways oh, but yeah name names of the yeah. father the law just in terms of i guess that symbolic function yes in turn yes. also in the sense of i guess the primal father to some degree yeah i mean there's in lacan's graph of sexuation right on the left hand side you have there exists one x one male who possesses the phallus who has the phallic function who embodies it so to speak and then the next one seemingly contradictory there is no x that possesses the phallus right that's the that's kind of how you could read read this logic of the death of the primordial father the the law of castration being the law of society of the symbolic and you know for freud it's it's he hypostatizes, he kind of reifies the, the penis as the biological organ to kind of fulfill also a symbolic function. And, and Lacan will want to like excise and get rid of that, that biological aspect because that is more of an imaginary, right? Um, the penis would be more imaginary and more just um, bodily and wouldn't yet get us to the, the phallus as you know, removed from the signifying chain as a transcendental signifier that sort of is the, is the lack that causes the series of signifiers to, to chain together and link together and all that. Um, I think that that's, that I think with Freud that, that he wasn't, he wasn't yet at that formalized stage. He's, he's, st- he still is thinking about these, these threats. And of course he's, you know, he's German. So you think about like, I think about all the, there's a whole, stereotype of German bedtime stories as being like gruesome and horrible and sometimes literally like bringing forth castration, but, but otherwise like representing it in different ways. And there's always something horrible happened to the child if they're bad and all this stuff. And it's like reintroducing you're, you're priming the child for like injecting the super ego and, and the law and, uh, you know, self-monitoring self-observation and, and also to, reinforce this notion of being a, a regulated being a body that that yeah. can that can regulate its its functions of excrement right so you got to master the anal stage before you can even deal with you know the phallic stage of this mother is prohibited father is the you know is the is the re- reinforcer of of good behavior so i think to build a little bit upon this sort of discuss like this um i guess this developmental model of looking at how narcissism serves a function at least early on in the development of the subject i really enjoyed this little quote here from freud that says as always where the libido is concerned man has here again shown himself incapable of giving a, a satisfaction that he once enjoyed yes and that being yeah. in the context of narcissism having at least early on in the development of the child, this sort of function, like it has a function that become that can become, and then this return in within the narcissist is this sort of familiar ground, this sort of um, well-trod ground or like path of least resistance in terms of libido is to go back to this narcissistic Although what it's not a, it's not a perversion. It's, it's something. Well, it's, it's these, it's kind of like, it almost reminds me of basic neurology, right? Like the neural networks, the paths, the libidinal paths are already 
um, paved. And so it's, it's easy for those flows to like retrack. I mean, or the, what he'll say in the beyond the pleasure principle. I mean, this is part of the tension of life death drives and why, you know, the death drive is about sort of forcing the life drives back into these conservative primitive tendencies. So we, we, you would see narcissism as a primitive tendency for Freud and why he postulates primal narcissism and, you know, because when we were talking about erotism and uh, the mirror stage, once the mirror stage gets passed through, um, kind of like Alice going through the mirror, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we really are then starting about the development of the ego. It's, and it's the same we know with brain plasticity. We know that after three, four, five years, even if the child's brain continues to grow, that's when a lot of the growth is done. That's when learning uh, language acquisition is important, et cetera. So it's really with this stage on the cusp of the mirror stage and the, the anal stage and becoming a well-totalized body that we're also beginning to form our first memories and beginning to form our first ego, properly speaking, even, even if it's still metastable and flexible and these other things, and we haven't really... You know, that's that's really when we first start having the fantasies of like, what do you want to be when you grow up, you know, and be a fireman or an astronaut or, you know, all these things. That's really when the ego starts to take form. And that's when we can start to speak about ego libido more generally. And that's when, too, the propping of the sexual drive begins to progressively deviate and diverge from the self-preservative drives, properly speaking, which is why Freud will say throughout this essay in different ways about how, you know, it's not until we can start seeing cathexis into objects that we can even distinguish between the ego and object libido, right? An ego libido and object libido. That distinction is, can't be made until a certain threshold is reached. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and I will say that it's that his point that you, cause he makes that, that the quote you just had about there's a, there's an easiness or there's a comfortableness in, in sort of uh, in narcissism. He makes this point towards the end of the paper with his stuff about love. And of course, you know, he has this kind of differentiation of the sexes, right. That the, that the boys, you know, type of narcissism is is about sort of finding an object to infuse his libido with and so he's looking for the woman to be to love right, right. and to infuse whereas to yeah to, 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 to cathex the woman with his with his love and the and the on the opposite for him and of course he's he's being general and he, he even says so but for women it's there's a kind of narcissism of you know, due to social restrictions and these other things, as he says, that leads her to be, to sort of infuse her own ego with the store of libido and to, to, to be loved, right? That's, that, that sort of correlates and they're kind of like the two laws halves of Aristophanes, you know, these, they each kind of complement each other and fulfill what they're lacking. Um, And so, but after that, after talking about this role of love, he wants to say, okay, so how does the woman, where is the woman's proper narcissism and ego libido? 
then cathected onto an object that would merit being cathected and invested. And he says it's the child that in giving birth to the child, the mother now has a proper conduit for the, uh, the intense eagle libido that she's been storing up. But for him, Freud's like, this is really a consequence of, of her own narcissism, right? That's yeah. There's an imaginary dialectic. The child is, you know, was a part of her body and, uh, yeah. Okay. uh, And and so it reflects uh, her narcissism. Gotcha. And so he wants to say, I mean, in a certain sense, then that's good. That really concretizes that too. Right. That discussion of the woman. Cause I think maybe too, to just to back up, right? Like what is it, what is it attracts that the man or the male finds attractive is the indifference or this mm-hmm. like narcissism, which is the like self, like you're, is it like being libidinally invested in oneself in this sort of imaginary or fantasy realm versus in the realm of the object or the realm of the external object, I think in right. particular is the biggest, I don't know if maybe symptom or uh, well, it's, it's, it's perhaps it's, of the narcissist, yeah. right? It's like this, instead of it's retreat, it's a retreat to the internal fantasy, to the internal or the object. And I don't, I don't know if that would be like ego or whatever the case is exactly there, but right. It's this rejection of external objects. Right. And, you know, he's for Freud, the male attachment or the male choice of objects to lean on is it goes back to what we kind of talked about with castration. If the mother is the first object of desire of the, the budding young male child, and that is the first object um, sort of denied him, then what Freud is trying to say is that eventually this leads into a, uh, you know, with quote unquote normal sexual development and development of the genitals, blah, blah, blah. This leads the male child to then look for a type that would, it's not just about looking for a woman who imaginarily has the mother's attributes, even though that could be a part of it. For him, this is, this is really a symbolic thing. When we talk about the different types of narcissism and the, and the different, the male and female types of cathexis, for him, it's about the mother is the loved object what the mother was primordially denied him is someone to love. Right. And not just, not just in the sense of affection. We're, so we're talking because for Freud, it is about that the male boy wants to give the mother a child, right. Wants to fulfill the symbolic function of the father. And that is denied him that incest taboo, right. That's why the male cathex uh, wants to, wants to, wants to love. And then the female wants to, to be loved, which, you know, again, if we talk about the Oedipus complex or the Electra complex or whatever, or castration for females, right? It's the fact that the, the female child wants uh, to give the father uh, a baby, right? Wants to, uh, wants to be loved by the father and that is denied her. So you can see how these two this whole thing about to love and to be loved is follows Freud's kind of basic idea of sexuation and basic idea of the, the first 
global persons that that we have these these desires for and and all of that and this is this is why Freud talks about the the male having this overvaluation this idealization of the the loved object that is that is this infusion from this from the eagle libido onto objects and um, we can see that I mean Jesus very good on this but so is Deleuze and Guattari you can see this in like courtly love the idea of chivalry and all of this where the the woman is idealized to the point of being unobtainable right and um see this in renaissance poetry and all this other stuff and uh you know won't we'll, we'll necessarily get off topic too much because we will um get back to some of that stuff i do want to point out real quickly that what's interesting here one of the problems since we talked about sort of go back to earlier in the essay one of the problems we talked about that freud wants to broach is this because he's thinking about Schreber and he's thinking about how narcissism functions for neurotics and for psychotics, speaking very generally, or for paranoids, because, or really he'll even call them paraphrenics. We won't get into that kind of terminology, but he's trying to distinguish psychosis and neurosis, right? Where neurosis with narcissism, it represents this withdrawal um Neurosis is a withdrawal of libido from the external world, right? So back on to, it's not necessarily back onto the ego though, because for Freud, the external world is, is deconfected, but the objects are still confected. They're just not, they're invested in, in the imagination or in fantasy, right? right? That's okay. what he'll want to say. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's really with the psychotic, or what he'll even call paraphrenics, sort of lumping in the, the schizophrenics and, and these other things. Freud wants to say that not only has the external world been disinvested by, uh, but this, this libido has then come back upon the ego, right? The object libido has sort of dammed up and welled up into, into ego libido and and, but but the psychotic doesn't replace those objects in the external world with fantasy objects or or imaginary objects. Instead, you have a hyper concentration back onto the ego. And when the psychotic does eventually replace it or, or does eventually connect back out into the external world, there is a replacement that goes on. Something has been changed in external realities. And this gets us to what we've been talking about with Lacan and Schreber for weeks now with this question of foreclosure, with this question of that which is denied entrance into the symbolic re reappears in, in the real. And we see this in ah, the okay. uh, evolution of Schreber's delusions <laughs> with Schreber's becoming woman, which is the first kind of symptom, you know, his, his, his ideation his affect, his lived experience that, hey, being, I wonder what it would be like to be fucked like a woman, that eventually culminates, you know, that, that already is symptomatic of this damming up of ego libido, so to speak, right? Because he is, that is a kind of narcissistic idea, right? What if I were the loved object? Yeah. And it's when that culminates so much, there's a threshold that happens. And for Freud, and this is why his idea of libido is damming up and all the pressure, you know, this is why it's very important because there's a point at which there's excess. And that's when we really start to get into pathology because it's now that so much has been withdrawn from the external world, it is 
there's a footnote in, in the essay, but it is like the end of the world for Schreber. He literally thinks that all humans have died and that whatever human forms are around are just mannequins or just fleetingly improvised men. They're, they're not real. And he has to give, he has to, two things happen or two things happen at the same time. One, he has to give birth to humanity again, but also in doing so he is connecting back out to, to the external world, to objects, but something has changed. Yeah. Right. I think that's, that's that's the essential thing. (laughs) That's really good. And it's like the pseudopod that Freud was talking about, except here, instead of just a, instead of an amoeba with little feet sticking back out to the external world, we have, you know, the culmination of a much more complex organism like an intelligent organism like Schreber, uh, who through the intensity of that ego libido and the delusions by reconstructing the world, there is a whole different dynamic going on. And, and, um, you know, for Lacan, he wants to say that what's foreclosed is the primordial signifier or the name of the father. And some of this stuff gets broached with Laura Well and, you know, philosophy repressing or not repressing, but foreclosing the, for Laura Well, you know, the one or the real is what forecloses thought. But in a certain sense, there's a secondary foreclosure or earlier he calls it repression. There's a repression of the name of the real which he's getting from Lacan, right? The name of the real is the name of the father and stuff like that. That's a whole other side thing. (laughs) Um, Although Freud does say something interesting about philosophy later on, right? He himself admits that when he's talking about self-observation, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to, I'm hoping we get to self-observation and paranoia later, but he, he wants to say that he brings up this psychologist philosopher named Silbert and um, he's, he features prominently in the interpretation of dreams really quickly. So Bear has this hypothesis about the functional phenomenon that when we're falling asleep, our, there's a part of the ego, the self-observational part that is, that is aware of and taking perceptually aware of us falling asleep. And, and as we become less and less vigilant, you know, kind of nodding off, so to speak, and that forms some dream contents. And Freud says, well, I never noticed this when I was studying dreams because maybe my, uh, my self-observational faculties are less pronounced. And he says it's in people more prone to speculative, to creation of speculative systems might, um, might be able to shed light on this. And we, and I think that really Freud is not just being, again, a little bit self-deprecating as he likes to do, but he's also thinking of, of Schreber, right, his memoirs and um, and the way that Schreber's whole delusional lived experience is accompanied with, in the writing of these memoirs with this whole cosmological system of God split into lower and higher, you know, of the of the different nervous rays that fill his body and sort of impregnate him and all of these other things. Like he has a whole kind of theological system that even Lacan says is fairly consistent. So that's important. I think for me, just looking ahead, or we could just, you know, finish talking about it in general is when Freud starts to talk about self-observation at the end of this essay, he's trying to understand how the genesis of something like the superego, which he hasn't, a term he hasn't coined yet, something like the superego and conscience 
and the sense of guilt can be internalized and how that really is part and parcel of or associated with this self-awareness and self-observation of our thoughts and our feelings and whatever. And that gets externalized in paranoia and therefore begins to feel threatening and persecuting because it has that status of a superego of the of that which judges us. Right. And, and so that's what causes this defense of the narcissism. Correct. Yeah. Am I right? I mean, that's that one of the true. Yeah, that is um that is one of the consequences of this dialectic of the ego and object libido. You know, I'm not averse to, to trying out anything, you know, with yeah. I don't want to cut off your maybe like dusting is sort of irrelevant, but I think maybe object A in particular in relation okay. to this narcissism is kind of okay. somewhat that's a fairly interesting I the think. object cause of desire yeah right because when that object is ex- internalized i don't know i think that's just a, that's an interesting thing because we always tend to think of object uh, as an external right this sort of right. horizontal movement from object to object in this kind of metonymic fashion you know, it's interesting that you bring up Abje Ah, right? Because, you know, for Abje Ah, for Lacan, it's it's the cause of desire. It's always this sort of this leftover, right? When we scrap away sort of everything that could be considered, uh, you know, either molar representations or global persons or whatever. And I would just say really quickly, like, in you know, in terms of narcissists, right? What is it that is the cause of his desire? Well, he, you know, in the, in the myth, he, he never comes upon an object cause of desire until he sees his reflection, right? And, and that's when the cause, the, the object cause of his desire is his, you know, his mirror image. It is this imaginary identification or yeah, this yeah. identification, not the right word, it's this imaginary. And you see in, in Freud's diagrams with the object ah, that it is a play of mirrors, right? It is this play of... Freud or Lacan? You said Freud. With Lacan. Okay, gotcha. With Lacan. I mean, you know, because Freud doesn't use the term object cause of desire, even if Lacan wants to claim that it's there in the Freudian yeah. theory you know, with, with Narcissus, the, it really does exemplify why Lacan is, you know, ceaselessly using diagrams of mirrors and where the, you know, there's both the sort of the, the ego as an imaginary function, you know, but also the sort of the ego prime sort of in the mirror and we're in the field of vision depending on where we're standing right that's that also shows a different parallax in what he calls phi and negative phi right the the movement of of the of the the image of the object cause of desire is it's sort of always we're always missing it right uh, in in the sense of the same way that we're always sort of uh, confusing the ego and the subject for Lacan, right? Because of this, this play of imaginary diffraction, so to speak, right? In the field of, of images. I mean, would that have any importance in terms of the, that distinction between ego libido, object libido, or like? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that it would, 
in the context of this essay, it would go back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier with the male and female types of types of narcissism, right? Yeah. Or types of investment. So, you know, really quickly, if following the, you know, the way that Freud stereotypes it, and he does admit it's a stereotype, it's both yeah, cultural yeah, yeah. and gender stereotypes. But, you know, for if the males, as we said, the first global person that he desires is the mother, and that's also the first object that's warded off and, and prevented and prohibited, you know, with he's looking for an object to love, right? So his object, uh, if we take it loosely in, in a Freudian sense, the object cause of his desire would be the female who respectively also, she wants to be loved, he wants to love. So it is this, this difference in this attraction of opposites, right? Right. He wants an object to, you know, overvalue and to hyper -cathect. He wants to cathect out into the, the world and she wants to to take in that 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 cathexis but you know for Lacan just to complicate things a little bit and looking <laughs> ahead and thinking about it you know we start to talk about you know what the man wants is woman insofar as she can't be known right he desired and, and Freud yeah, yeah. intimates it that that it's that the overestimation the overvaluation of the of the loved object of woman is partly associated it's associated with with jealousy it's associated with this enigma mm -hmm. right that's enticing for him with Lacan it's about this question of knowledge right and how you know I mean that too like that's very directly referencing kind of the the sexuation graph or yes right that theme right mm -hmm. and the female wants because the male is sort of trapped in that phallic function mm -hmm. yeah right whereas the feminine is not although they but like i don't know that's kind of a problematic like no, I think it, it, yeah it, itself it, it, to this notion that women are or like women don't lack which i think is somewhat i don't think that's what lacan is trying to say women have this privileged status within the sexuation within sexuation that they don't aren't necessarily caught within the phallic function that all men sort of operate from it's a different conception of lack on each side yeah, if we yeah. stick with right. it and you know uh Zizek's pretty good on this with this question of woman is is not all Although for Lacan, right, woman with a capital W, the woman doesn't exist. It's precisely the definitive article that's that's crossed out. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of in the, man. So like in contrast to something like the primal father, mm -hmm. right, that's what that's what the V crossing out the V is going towards. Right. Or am I? Well, it, just, to just to clarify that point real quick. Well, it's it's precisely. I mean, I guess one way of thinking about it is if on the left side of the graph, there is one X, there is one quote unquote male who has the phallic function or has access to it. That's the primal father. And then there is, and therefore no X has access to it, right? That's castration. But sticking just to the upper side of the diagram, then on the right, there is no X that is not submitted to castration Right. Right. Which is which opens up the not all or the not whole, uh, the, po the 
I think it's Patut, right? The Patu. So there is not an X that is not submitted. This double negation. There's not an X <laughs> that is not submitted to the to castration. Therefore, there is some X that is not submitted to to the phallic function, right? It opens up this possibility, the space of possibility. Right. It's like a parallax of of lax. Not to pun, <laughs> I guess to 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 fucking pun. I love it's a it. Para- it's, a, it's, a, it's a parallax in the question of <laughs> of lax, and so uh, you know, with with Freud in the narcissism, the male child wants to fill that phallic function of the father and wants to love the mother, wants to substitute himself for the father, and. On the other hand, the female wants to be loved by the father, the first object denied her, and wants to substitute herself for the mother and give give birth to to a child for the father, right? Take that take that place symbolically. With Lacan, it's a it's a question of knowledge, right? The sort of the male drive to fill in the lack of quote of the woman with literally with the phallus that he thinks he has yeah whereas and therefore always misses right so it's it's always this question of knowing the unknowable the enigma that is woman freud's eternal question what is what what is woman what do women want right Um, whereas what what women desire in the lacanian idea of it is precisely this non-knowledge right of of the male, uh, the male's eternally missing. So it is this whole different dialectic of truth and knowledge and all of that. It goes a little bit beyond the scope of this, but we can see some of this mirrored in, in these, these choices of, of an object or in these different interplay, this different aspects of the intensive side of narcissism. Yeah. Right. And, and for, for Freud, he kind of wants to hedge his bets and, and say that, that obviously this, this doesn't go for all males, and it doesn't even necessarily go for all biological males. Right. It's but not universal. This, right. And I, when I was reading this, I was thinking about, you know, the fact that Freud earlier on in the 1890s and his discussion with Fleece, he gets this idea from Fleece that we all have a sort of bisexuality to us. Not, And by that, it's not about object choice. It's not that we, although... We'll talk about homosexual libido here and how that functions with sublimation and how that, you know, that being denied a homosexual outlet consequently through successful sublimations gives us back a bunch of ego libido that we wouldn't have. But, you know, with Freud's bisexuality, his notion is that whereas Jung might talk about an animus and an anima, this sort of this, this sort of internal spiritual feminine side and masculine side, you know, for Freud, constitutively, it's not just about object choice. It's really about positions, if you will, about about different types of agency, different types of, if you will, active and, and passive. And that therefore, you know, I was thinking about how this is why he kind of hedges his bets. And, and one can say that, you know, there is this alternating of Connecting out into objects, but connecting back in into ego. If we use that metaphor of inside and outside, which is obviously unstable, Ooh. and you know, and males and, and females would both have various proclivities and tendencies and emphases, and it is very highly individual. Even if 
you know, certain cultures, more or less, there are standards. And this notion of standard gets very important towards the end of this essay, which we'll come back to. But yeah, I mean, even if there are standards and stereotypes and tendencies based upon what we might call, you know, social construction, right? That uh, whether it be gender is socially constructed or our identities are socially constructed, et cetera, right? I think that, that the constitutive bisexuality of, of males and females is something that's lurking in the background here, but it's not, yeah. it's, it's no longer foregrounded, which is why he can talk about, you know, there are obviously females that, that, you know, grew up with a kind of tomboyish thing and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, he, he knows he's making a lot of these generalities about yeah. the sexes. Uh, and at the same time, it's like, you know, it's provisionally to distinguish between these, this activity of loving and being loved. And, you know, for, for someone like Augustine and his, you know, path towards, towards converting to Christianity and towards, in the confessions, he remarks about this sort of universal tendency to love and to be loved, right? And I think that that's how Freud, when he's talking about love in this essay is, you know, he's still kind of thinking of active male loving object cathexis and then to be loved female passive, you know, ego uh, libido, Right. And, and, and that lines up with his reading of Schraber. That lines up with how he understands Schraber's becoming woman, because this becoming woman is not what is it to fuck like a woman? What is it to experience to receive, being right. fucked? Right. right. So it, it is this. As object, um, there's the yes, narcissist right. type, right? Is and who better than to be like God? Yeah, exactly. Which is the most, what is it? Not Is it megalomania, right? Is one of the. Yeah traits yep. of the narcissist too right that's is, that's good that you bring up megalomania and this will get us back to because like yeah what's more megalomania what's than to be the object a, of god's desire yeah exactly yeah. yeah precisely right yeah and um you know i totally i totally agree with that and so that is megalomania and it shows the height of how much ego libido we can assume Schraber had to accumulate to have that initial thought right. that would have been foreclosed which is yeah. this notion of what is it like to experience feminine jouissance, as Lacan might say? Yeah. Right? Which is supposedly something that for a biological male, supposedly in a hard Freudian sense, is foreclosed to, to male thinking. Yeah. And it's precisely the, the object of, of knowledge to which we have no access. That, that's our non-knowing. That's our constitutive lack. You bring up megalomania, and it's important, you know, for, for Freud, two of the main factors in paranoia and what he calls paraphrenias, which includes psychosis and, and schizophrenia, and is this, first there is, you know, megalomania. So it's what we've been talking about as this intense damming up of ego libido and which he wants to, a moderate state would be narcissism or just the base state would be narcissism. Megalomania takes that, that ego libido narcissistic state up to a, to a height and then dissociation from the world, which we talked about earlier about this withdrawing of object cathexis back to ego libido. That's a dissociation from the world. And then we see the transformation that, that occurs when the, when the paranoid, schizophrenic, paraphrenic, whatever, delusionally recreates the world, right? And, and cathexis back into the external world, but the world's totally changed in his own image, so to speak. 
but he, he defines megalomania on page 85 where he says, he said, okay, the difference between paraphrenic, which we said psychotic, schizophrenic affections and the transference neurosis, transference neurosis being, you know, whether it be hysteria or as I mentioned earlier, transference neurosis being taking the analyst as standing in for parental identifications. Right. As that object. Um, right. As an object. That's right. As a as an and object. I think we should even too, maybe it might be good to like, because Lacan has that quote that we like to riff on often about uh, transference is love. Yes. Transference well. is love. That's right. And he gets that straight from Freud. So the difference between paraphrenic affections and the transference neuroses appears to me to lie in the circumstance that in the former in paraphrenia, the libido that is li liberated by frustration does not remain attached to objects in fantasy, but withdraws on the, on the ego. We, we talked about that a little bit earlier. This is the definition though. Megalomania would accordingly correspond to the psychical mastering of this latter amount of libido. So the, the mastering of all the, the, the libido withdrawn from objects back onto the ego. That would be, and would thus be the counterpart of the introversions onto fantasies that is found in the transference neurosis. A failure of this psychical function gives rise to the hypochondria of paraphrenia, and this is homologous to the anxiety of the transverse roses. So really quickly, I mean, the last thing to fill in, right, with Schraber was we know that, you know, he's treated, he's treated twice. He goes into the asylum twice to be treated by the same doctor, first with these notions of hypochondria, and then it full-blown or becomes full-blown psychosis. And so, you know, with Freud, hypochondria really stands in for an organ, usually one, but we could say, we think of, you know, we could think of a multiplicity of organs, but really it's like an organ gets connected with this as an object, if you will. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, there's, there's something that happens where an organ gets, he, he, he uses the metaphor of when we think of an origin organs uh, being normally non-pathologically being connected with energy, it's the swelling of the genitals, not just the genitals are too, right? Because we know about, you know, the nipples get erect, right? And they're not, but they're partial object, uh, you know, even in general organization, they're still erogenous zones. Um, right. Like, but the, yeah, but the, the clitoris gets the clitoris, infused the, with blood and fluid, right. et cetera. The, la the labia, so obviously the glands and the right. penis. So that's like a normal metaphor for hypochondria because, you know, for, for Freud, it's, we become ill, we withdraw our libido from the outside world, from libidinal objects, our libido withdraws back onto our ego, right? It is, we kind of get back into our shell, our little turtle shell. And we try to, we try to use that ego libido to heal ourselves or, yeah. or to, or to become better, to start to recover. Right. This, this, you can see this too in Nietzsche where he himself went through different bouts of all kinds of illnesses and, and pains. And he talks most joyfully about convalescence, right? Once we convalesce is when we have this overabundance of energy that we can then th throw back out into the world or into creation, into art. You know, for Freud, it's the same thing. He has that quote from, I think it's from, is it from Heine or no, it's not from Heine. He quotes two poets. <laughs> One is Heine. But I'll quote the Heine one because I think that's more interesting where 
Heine talks about the psychogenesis of creation with a capital C, where it's God is imagined as saying, illness was no doubt the final cause of the whole urge to create by creating, I could recover by creating, I became healthy. So that's kind of an interesting poetic allegory for what happens when we become ill. We, we, our sexual drive lowers, we, you know, we become a little bit more less interested in the world, et cetera. And all that comes back onto the ego. And, um, and that is, uh, and that's why for him too, Freud, for him too, why narcissism is not a perversion and also why megalomania is too a part of a healthy functioning of the ego. It's a part of this give and take this ebb and flow of libido back, you know, back out to objects and back to, back to mm-hmm. ego and, and, and et cetera. I have an interesting little aside or something that it's interesting. I think in the context of going back to libidinal economy. Yeah. And the and the difference between the Lydian erotics and the the Taoist erotics. Yep. And how the relation to so for the woman, the woman that is the narcissist, the offspring, that's what allows them to sort of get libidinally invested. They're not necessarily libidinally invested in their partner. They're more so invest they're invested in their offspring which is somewhat interesting like in that context of the athenians perhaps right because of Mm -hmm. the homosexuality right they're they're not invested in it's almost the kind of in this essay yeah right freud describes homosexuality as this sort of narcissistic thing right yeah that's a good point i mean for the term to remind the the listeners right for the lydians and the athenians Leotard gives this notion that the Lydians, or even the Taoist too, right? Like that's well, another interesting layer. On yeah, that. we can we will definitely have to get get to that because that complicates things. But for the Lydians who supposedly are one of the earliest coin mentors of coin, so they they stand out in in terms of economic prowess. But in libidinal economics, they are noted for prostituting their daughters. And in that way, they empty the womb of its symbolic procreative function and kind of almost, you know, in this sense, force sterilize their daughters as an object of exchange in order to reap the benefits of a kind of surplus value. For the Athenians, there's something correlative going on where women are not to be infused with the, they're not overvaluated like Freud's talking about here in in modern German society or just modern Western society for the Athenians, women are merely a means to an end, right? That you marry a wife so you can procreate with her. You don't marry her so that you can hypercathect her with your libidinal drives. And so you, you do the deed, you procreate, you have children, and really you're trying to have more male children to perpetuate this little homosexual group, this homosexual club. So women are a means to getting more men to reinforce and reproduce the stock of the homosexual um, relations, this homosociality that is where the true libidinal cathexis goes on. And, and it is a different, it's a, it's, but it's a variant on a theme, right? Because that's another form of the male then kind of hijacking pregnancy. And what Freud's talking about is the 
the woman in Freud's terminology is the one trying to finally have an object to on which to put her narcissistic egoistic libido with the Athenians. They are trying to do the same thing. They're making men in their own image, right? They're trying to recreate that society. And so it's different vectors of sublimation, even if some of the, you know, because, because for Freud, it's in modern Western society with homosexuality as not an acceptable outlet, at least in terms of, Right. And you even know, the I standards guess, of which he was talking about. Yeah, that's it's it's when we sublimate as men, our homosexual urges that we are able to gain a, a you know, gain access to this eagle yeah. libido that then we can put out into other projects, civilization, so to speak. And like we discussed in with Elliot in terms of seminar three for Lacan, the um, like Schraber, uh, there's no space in the symbolic for mm-hmm an actual becoming woman for Schreiber, right? That is a, that sort of is, there's a foreclosure to that. There's no possibility for Schreiber to, well, now again, this is provisionally speaking, but at least in his symbolic realm as, you know, the Senate president, right? As this superior judge that he has become, he literally is embodying the fucking uh, law in his, corner of Germany and Mm -hmm. there's no juridical, barely technical medical means by which to transition to woman in the sense that we think of it today. Right. Also hormonal advances. I mean, all uh, the technology, not just in terms of medical, biological, et cetera, but also it's really important that the juridical aspect cuts off that line of flight, that becoming for him in reality and therefore it is, you know, that that's that's one of the ways that it, it it happens to him intensively, right? It can't happen in extension. It happens intensively. Yeah, what is repressed? Mm-hmm. That's almost like what's impressed in the symbolic wait. No, that's reverse. That's goes back to the real and the symbolic and repression, right? Well, that's I mean, or maybe it's, a it's reversal in, of it or well, it, it is it is interesting, <laughs> right? That, that that avenue in the real isn't possible, but you could say it in Lacanian terms still that, that what is denied entrance into symbolic is, is becoming woman juridically, technically, medically, biologically, sexually, that is not a possibility or the conditions of possibility of it are foreclosed. foreclosed if you yeah. want to like say it like that, <laughs> because, you know, cause there are other ways to transition you know, uh, we see it in, in other cultures and even ancient cultures. There are thresholds, there are nuances that, you know, that aren't um, necessary playing with these dialectical binaries. Like we, we see Freud both deconstructing on the one hand, but also reinforcing on the other. You know what I mean? And I think with Schreiber, that's a good, good point where it, you know, the, we did touch upon this with with Schreiber that this avenue of becoming woman and and then having to recreate the world is too bound up with his inability, his impotence, not necessarily of his sexual penis, of his actual physical penis, but his impotence as procreator, mm-hmm. as as involved in the procreative process because right. he and his wife yes. have failed to have right. a child. Okay, there there the Schreiber line is ending. It's through. Um, yes. So becoming woman and 
being uh, right. the, the mother of all <laughs> creation. It's I mean, so that is a kind of, that is the height of megalomania, but right. it's also related to this symbolic function yes, of, exactly. uh, of creating. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> um, God, that's fantastic. See. What I think too is kind of interesting yeah. that goes back to this, I guess, functionalist interpretation yeah. of the narcissism is mm-hmm. in this kind of relation that Freud lays out with the narcissistic woman. It's for the man, it is the, in sort of that narcissistic indifference, but he refers to it differently. He says that they recognize this narcissistic relationship that they have sort of overcome. They've moved on out of that stage or whatever language you want to use there, right? They've moved you know, on, but that's, yeah. so, so that is maybe the lure or that that's what kind of triggers this desire from the other partner is this recognition of the narcissism that they've overcome in themselves. And then, yeah, I guess that, that lack of investment is the draw for the other partner. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's, it's that. And then even what's interesting too here real quick is that just in regards to like excrement and these other Mm-hmm. kind of things it's interesting that the narcissist has such an attachment to the the offspring it, it, like in contrast to like their shit or piss or or cum or fluid right, right? like those right. it's like no, those objects are don't have they're not cathexized right libidinally it's more or they are in a sense perhaps in like in the negative side versus this positive of the offspring that you know you can kind of invest in it emotionally or like, I guess, is that a ma- imagine? No, I, I totally agree. I, 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 I mean, I would say that one thing that Freud leaves out in seeming to overemphasize the female being able to finally have an object for her ego libido to connect upon with the child is the fact that men want children too. A lot of times men want fucking men children or right. they want to make little men. And I'm right. not even talking about the Lydians and Athenians anymore. And yeah, that kind of sense. that's its they, own ego. They, they too want right, to, right. they too want to titillate their narcissistic. Yeah. Yeah. They, they want to reproduce their own image in the world. Right. Exactly. Um, yes. To deny the Very fact good. that, that men don't want to have a, a little boy to raise and to right. throw, True. throw ball with and, you right. know, and teach them how to be rugged men and all that shit stereotypically that I think to deny that is to, again, to, to foreclose the initial insight that he gets from police about our constitutive bisexuality. I mean, and the fact that, you know, there are, I think that, that. What's oh important? yeah. Yeah. Cause it's so meg- megalomania. And, the, and he talks yes. to like about the investment, the investment in the children to, I guess be more successful, like to yep, that's right. To sort of fill in all of these what are perceived as dysfunctions within the adult, the the parent, right? Right. Like they have the the offspring are this narcissistic attempt to overcome these deficiencies within society or within the subject, I guess, rather that they're deficient in mm-hmm. in this confrontation with the symbolic order, right? as well, which I think also, you know, is tied into this whole discussion of narcissism. It's like this relation to, you know, what the symbolic is, 
is telling us about our the feedback that the symbolic is is providing to the imaginary. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's 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 great, and that actually segues to being able to start talking about the 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 ego ideal and the ideal ego. Um, with Freud, these terms are not rigorously distinguished even if he uses them both with the con, they do get formalized, but I'll be really quick with this, these notions, because it does hinge upon what we just talked about with the male also wants to feed his narcissistic drive. If I may use that term, even though it's not Freud, he wants to fuel his narcissism too, by, by having a, uh, you know, a, a child and it could be a female child too. Right. They'll, right. they'll I mean, but it's obviously it's different, right. With the, you know, male, Males typically, stereotypically want to have a male child. They want to reproduce their image in the world because, you know, they think in that's the height that, of megalomania, that's that the, world phallic, more, the world needs more little me's, right? You know, um, is that and, part of the phallic function as well in that sense and kind of like privileging the possibly, I mean, that's, you know, got to pass the phallic torch to, you know, the, the next a new generation. Next generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But handing but, off, but, passing the baton. If you but you know, um, <laughs> but you know, males and females. I think Freud doesn't really appreciate that they each fuel their narcissism by well, it's too wanting like if, to to have children, which is something too that they they get pressured under right. by societies. Why else are you marrying? This is this all feeds back into the Oedipal critique that if we were doing Deleuze and Guattari would be would be primary here would be would be necessary to yeah. critique narcissism itself as right. this you know, feeding one's ego by reproducing little egos that look like us. That's an imaginary type thing that you you discuss. But uh, with Freud, I think that's important. I'll get to the Lacan part, but with Freud, when he brings in the ego, I, when he brings in the, uh, he'll, he'll call it both here in this essay, actually. When he brings in the ideal ego, let's say, for Freud, the ideal ego is, as he as he put it, it's sort of a prototype for an object of love, right? So he says the narcissistic type of object is A, what he himself is, i.e. himself. So whether it be the father or the mother, because it's really he or himself or herself, because that's, okay, that's the first object. So me, that's, again, we know that the ego is an imaginary function. It's sort of, um, if you will, bodily unity and whatever is the prototype for the the imaginary. So we we take our own bodies, we take our own mirror image, and we want to put that into the world. We see that even in myth with God made us in his image, so to speak, right? So so in a certain sense, the best of us is is meant to be kind of God's narcissism too, right? I mean, yes. and we even saw uh, from Heine's poem that it was because God was ill that he had to he had all of this excess ego libido restored that he had to connect it into objects and create the, uh, create the universe, create, but also create man as his last act, right? Uh, right. As, as, as the last crowning achievement of that megalomania. The second narcissistic type is what he himself was. So this gets back to primary narcissism. And we really inherit that from our parents because they love and, and dote on us and they infuse us with all that narcissism, right? The, the ba baby, his, his majesty, the baby, as Freud calls it, you know, what we used to be is another type of narcissistic object because, and this gets to like, against the Greeks and the Athenians, you see 
this desire for young male boys in the prime of their youth, right as they are, you know, right, right as they are becoming adults, this whole dialectic of, of educating them in the arts of, of sex and all of this, that is also a narcissism of what the adult male used to be, right? And sort of a ignorant in the ways of love and um, et cetera. So you see that just like Dulles and Guattari say that contrary to uh, Freud articulating that the child enters the Oedipus complex and therefore it's, it's the child's fucking craziness. <laughs> it's actually Oedipus starts in the mind of the father. Right. And is yeah. then projected onto the, yes. to the son. Yeah, exactly. It's the same way that it's a chicken egg kind of thing because it's like, okay, I used to be this loved, beloved object by my parents. I was given this by my parents who were given it by their parents, et cetera, which is, you know, it's this great chain of being thing. So to say that primary narcissism is something that we just eventually get to after the anal stage, after the mirror phase, et cetera, well, that was implanted by our parents, hypothetically. So we have what he himself is, we want to reproduce more of us, what he himself, what we were right when we were doted upon and then see what he himself would like to be yes and and that's the one where he that's really where we start to get this dialectic of the ego ideal and the ideal ego so uh i'll say a little bit about that just that you know the suffice it to say you know with lacan it's a difference between the imaginary and the symbolic um, whereas the ideal ego would be a function of imaginary identifications and where we measure ourselves up against, say, the father who is not as an example to live by, right? He's big. We see he's got the big, big penis and we have a little <laughs> penis. And eventually, you know, how could we ever be so powerful, right? How could we ever be so powerful as, uh, as, as God, for example? That's an imaginary identification based on based on bodies, based on, so we start to take up, we start to replicate the, their actions. We start to take on their language and these other things. It's yeah. really more that the ego ideal is the symbolic point, literally this ideal point from which we observe ourselves. And that is where we can institute a kind of cut in what we would like to be. We can okay. have that future. We can, so you see a kind of temporality of present, past, and future. I mean, this is this too is like starts being in nothingness with the, the different ecstasies of time, Heidegger too, but you know, this this notion of we are sort of our freedom is you know condemned to be free, right? Where we have this open future, uh, where we have to have this ideal or have to, we, we naturally have this sort of ideal point where we look back upon ourselves in this self-observational way, in this potentially deluded, paranoid way. And we, in our valuations of ourselves, decide that, that we must change our life, right? As Rilke might say, looking on the, the bust of Apollo, right? Where we, and this is this dialectic of the ego ideal and the ideal ego and of the imaginary and the symbolic in that sense. This is where I think Freud is our, is beginning to crystallize the notions of the superego, which becomes this internalized agency of not just self-monitoring and this kind of vigilance, but this kind of moral agency, this yeah. feeling of guilt. It's kind of conscience. like an analogous to the symbolic for Lacan 
in a yes by right. and large at least right right so we you you have persons to model yourself after but also you have you literally sit the law and not just the father but the policeman the the judge blah 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 all of that is supposedly internalized in the superego agency yeah, right, right. Where we, when we enter and this this is a this gets back to what we talked about with castration that's that's going through the castration yeah, complex. The names of the father. The complex. Yeah. Right. We we subsume the names of the father and uh yeah, and we try to be well, well adjusted bodies and and uh persons responsible. We we are I mean Nietzsche wants to in the genealogy of morals, he asks this question about how is it that that man can can be said to have developed a memory to remember promises to be able to make promises how did this animal get to this point and it's for him it's not just a long trek of culture and civilization but it's literally this kind of torturing of of bodies in a in a symbolic sense right it is it is a priming and it is this this repetition of uh of culture molding bodies and marking bodies to and then that, of course, leads to this whole notion of making the debt infinite. But with Freud, you know, we you could you could easily bring in uh, bring bring Freud in with with Nietzsche there. I mean, they would differ on certain points, but it would it would be interesting to. Uh, I'm sure there's tons of literature on it, but you know, it would be interesting to just already think about the superego as this this uh, this internalization of of infinite debt. But the fourth one is so we have what he is himself, what he himself was. What he himself would like to be, so the past, present, future. But there's another future, which is someone who was once part of himself. And I think that that may seem strange, but you know, I'm thinking here: if we leave aside psychical, delusional splitting of the ego, blah blah blah, it's it would be the child, right? That the child was a part of, and it's weird that it, again, it's masculine here. It should be a part of herself. But but two, as we said, that you know even if the man only contributes a sperm or whatever, it's, you know, one can say that the man is always trying to compete with, with the woman in terms of, uh, of, of pregnancy and the progenitive, there's a jealousy. Uh, right. You know, if, if the woman, you know, with Freud, if the woman, the girl has penis envy, there is, there is for, at least in my view, correlatively, yeah. you know, it's not symmetrical. Baby. There is a pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. There's, right. yeah there's, there's a, there's a womb envy. Right. Um, the desire to be, and, yeah. And it ties in to kind of be that voluptuous figure for the primal father, almost right? jealousy there, right? Yeah. It ties into Schraber's, you know, his, his intense delusional lived experience. And uh, so those are the four types of narcissism. What do you think um, about just yeah. while I'm thinking about this relationship between or this kind of edible thing, how do we like view the kind of, more modern notion where like you see this there's was kind of a popular like in the discourse on twitter was the picture of the father the fathers around the boyfriends with guns right like what (laughs) you know what i mean and kind of like that i'll i got i'll be i got my gun i'm shining oh i see what you mean yes 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 of course yeah you're talking about pictures especially southern uh but yeah it's like a common the the father uh, is it's like they want to, it's like this mastery over the feminine or this desire to master yeah. the feminine. The way I, the way in my mind, I picture it is that the mother and father are of the, of the young girl, this prom night. 
Yeah. And the, the boyfriend or the, or the boy taking the girl to the prom, which is again, a stereotype that could be broken, but in the stereotype, the boy comes to pick up the, the girl and the sits down and meets the mother and father. So sometimes for the first time, mother, right. you know, like, Oh, we got to take a picture. You guys are all yeah, dressed exactly, up. Exactly. This is you're entering the symbolic order. And uh, <laughs> the, the mother is as the camera you're being at a picture. Yeah. And sometimes you do have these weird, things where the father is there and you, as you said sometimes bearing a gun and it doesn't have to be a i mean honestly the gun doesn't even have to be there because right. that's yeah, just it's a already <laughs> instantiation of the phallic exactly you know function Symbolic and, order, yeah, yeah. and um i would just say that yeah that that the this is a uh, the father is i may not be your father but i could still castrate you right but I think yeah. also like in the sense of narcissism, right? It's mm-hmm. you will, this is my offspring. You must treat respect it like her. you must respect because you must respect me. It's yes, about, it's not about, me. it's not really about low, although like seemingly on the surface, it's about this, this sort of, I guess you would say love, right? For the, cause it like, it is in this sort of fucked up way, love in the, in a sense, right? <laughs> At least on a kind of from a surface point, like if you ask the father, well, why do you threaten? Why do you do this? It would be, oh, I love my daughter, right? It's not like I love my, oh, well, I love myself. So yeah, much. but but that's but but Freud is trying to show that that's part of it. I mean, the the father obviously loves himself. That's part of the narcissism, but but it's connected onto the the daughter. But also, the, yeah, yeah. there's okay. this this thing where the daughter supposedly as the father knows can be taken advantage of is more right. susceptible to being it's not even about really it's it's more about cultural standards than about biological yeah exactly necessarily but it's about the the daughter it can be violated symbolic, she has a, yeah. she has a virginity to protect right right because that is the sacred the hymen is like the sacred in contrast to the in contrast to the Athenians though. Right. Which is kind yes, of an interesting true. Par- or, uh, contradiction or. Right. right. I mean, with the Athenian father, maybe he would have um, wanted to guard his, his young son's virginity from an older male. So it could have been a totally homosexual, homosexual, but, but, but the father too is that now the boyfriend represents who will take his place, right? And so it's still this question of now that the incest taboo is no longer in play, but it's still this question of who is allowed to ask for her hand in marriage. And the fact <laughs> that that's still traditionally, that's still a standard in Western. What about um, the graduate in this sense? Too? <laughs> what about the grad? Oh, well, I mean that that brings in questions of, of cuckoldry and and these other things. Isn't the graduate where he sleeps with Mrs. But then he like he ends up marrying the daughter, right? Well, I mean that that could be taken if we stick on the same Freudian level. That's that's the she is the forbidden object that he transgresses with. Mrs. Rob, yeah, because right doesn't he's, he right. sleeps with Mrs. Robinson, but then there's the whole marriage thing with Mrs. Right. Robinson's daughter, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a long time. That's not an appropriate, suitable, uh, it's an object of fantasy, but in terms of an object of socially acceptable object of desire and outlet for a desire, it, that path is blocked. 
and that path is blocked. And I mean, it would, it, not that it, not that it necessarily had to have been, he could have obviously tried to, cause, cause in the, in the movie, he's the one that's supposedly seduced. Right. Right. Even if he wants it. Yeah. You know, and she seduces him in some sense also to, that's also can be interpreted narcissistically because she wants to believe that she can, uh, that she's still, an, she's still desirable for right. a, a younger man. She wants to feel desired. And of course, and of course the guy doesn't really know what he's doing either. I mean, he's, he may not be a virgin, but he's depicted as being sexually ignorant. A novice, if not, Yeah. A novice. And he doesn't beyond that. And of course, you know, you can make it about him wanting an older woman and, you know, imaginary identifications with the mother type, blah, 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 because that's, that's the second type of object of love. This is good because there is the woman who feeds him and the man who protects him or the substitutes. So she's a substitute for the mother. The doting feed, mother, right. Yeah, the, right. But as you see, the social really avenues- the breast goes back to the breast. Right. And the partial. That's true. That, that's how she, well, she, the, the lingerie, right, that she wears to, to seduce him. Yeah, the, the, the breast, which, as you said, it gets us back to self-preservative drives of, of who fed, what do we feed upon? So it is the partial object that stands in for, for that, the anaclytic, that leaning on type versus the narcissistic type, you know? And, and I think that, that, that it's not impossible that he could have given, given the balls and the gumption, tried to get her to leave his wife, but get <laughs> her to leave her husband. But that was never, that never really seemed to be a part of the drive. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. So that's why a second substitute when we go to socially acceptable that would be the daughter would be the ex- yeah, socially acceptable which is why he f- becomes fixated upon her perhaps yeah because that's the next immediate available position that's the next immediate available object of desire is that is the daughter since the the, the mother is is denied sort of foreclosed to thought <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm, getting, it, I'm getting crazy. It's, it's a different kind of foreclosure, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not, Foreclosed a, it's not a viable, flight. as I was saying, it's not a viable line of flight. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not, there you go. <laughs> and, and that's a fantasy too. I mean, again, it functions well for fantasy. I mean, like it's, it's like when you're fucking, when you're, when you're fucking, you are in a fantasy space. Yeah. Exactly. And because if you are thinking about the act of fucking. Right. The um, physical you know, when you're thinking the machinery about it, while you're doing it, yeah, it, yeah it, it's, it's gross and it's, and it's stupid and it's, you're, and it takes you out of the, the moment right. when really the moment is the imaginary, yeah. right? It takes you out of the, uh, the, yeah. the headspace. Um, Interesting. So you can't, you can't fuck in the real, right? Uh, I mean, that's good. I was just about to ask if that would be like the real sort of poking its way in a little bit. Well, as, as Lacan says, not only is the real impossible, but the real doesn't lack anything, right? It's, it's completely fully present all, at all. Right. Time. Um, <laughs> you know, we can, we can fantasize about, about boring a hole in it, but that's, but again, that's fantasy. That's an imaginary access and that's an imaginary penetration of the real, not a real penetration, <laughs> uh, if you will. Oh, that's so, good. so yeah, Very I nice. mean, it's, it's kind of similar here with you know i think that we could also get back to the, the question about the, the lacanian diagram really quickly just to finish with the stuff about the graduate he the protagonist that is quote unquote seduced by the 
the older woman, he doesn't know what women want. And that's what Mrs. Robinson precisely desires. It's precisely that he doesn't, he doesn't know, um, doesn't pretend to know and doesn't try to fill in whatever black she has. Right. I mean, she, yeah. He, okay. And that's the allure. You know, right. Okay. He, she's able to be the object of his fantasy, which is precisely this lack of knowledge. And she wants that lack of knowledge. And yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you, you see this. And in, more, in that way, she kind of wants mm, to return to her own. Is that her wanting to return to her own lack of knowledge at a certain like development? Possibly way, to return to a virginal state or return to a, a certain youth that is yeah. impossible. Right. Except, except in fantasy. Right. She can feel young. She can feel desired again because she's in this loveless marriage or whatever, you know, whatever. I mean, like you can generalize about these kind of things, True. but you know, more dangerously or more perniciously, you do see, like in Days and Confused, you see the character of Matt, played by Matthew McConaughey, where he has that line where I, I keep getting older, but they stay the same age. Now, you do have this fetishization of of the virgin, of right. sometimes of statutory type of rape laws are there for a reason precisely because it is there is something going on with these cycles of not only child abuse but this fetishization of virginity that we still have in the west and this right uh i mean like freud only very quickly kind of glides over it, this notion that the reason why women have this they're the beloved object and they have all this ego libido is because of social restrictions he kind of just like yeah assumes that as a given that we it's not necessarily that it'll always be this way and i think that's why he wants to say this is generalization yeah but assuming as a given for modern and still today in postmodern kind of moral sexual standards that are i mean not in place everywhere not hard and fast but but are still hovering around in the in the noosphere right in well this, i mean if you look at that yeah. even in the context of the muslim different variations of head and body covering etc right right i mean sort of per, there that's even almost a more that's even a more intense it's a kind of a warding off of casual intimacy right yes. uh, through the eyes so there there is a kind of hypercathexis of the scopic drive right of of seeing and the gaze and fucking, yeah of ogling uh of ogling fucking with your eyes and that kind of stuff, right? The male gaze is... Is it subverted or would it be intensified well, by that? I mean, <laughs> you know it, what I mean? That, that, I mean, that's, that's the thing, you know, William Or Blake sublimated, says, perhaps, I guess. William Blake Sublimated says, versus... Uh, well, yeah, sublimation is a good way to put it. William Blake has the line that prisons were built by stones of law, brothels by bricks of religion, right? <laughs> so this question of the drives being sublimated leads to these collective institutions, both of which are parodies of, of one another. But yeah, I, I guess that that would be the thing that, that, that is, it is a warning off of the male gaze. And as you said, it potentially intensifies it, but it's also meant to, the virginity is, is taken to a higher degree, right? Cause one is potentially in public. One is one's body, even one's face beyond the eyes is prevented from being violated by the male gaze, yeah. by the intrusiveness of the male right. gaze. Exactly. And conversely, some, uh, symmetrically or even asymmetrically, what is left enigmatic, what 
we are left with is the uh, is the female gaze coming back, which is not meant to be in that sense violating intrusive, but submissive is not the right word, but coy and again heightening the enigma that Freud yes. talks about. That so yeah, I mean with those cultural means of preventing certain violations of virginity and therefore kind of hypostatizing it, you do, you do intensify certain drives. I mean, that's, that's just, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, and each culture has its own means of sort of warding off these things and hyper-cathecting, hyper-investing these things. As I said, you know, this, this question of virginity isn't just symbolic as a, as a fetish. It's also this question of the, the subject supposed to know. Right, because it's precisely one of the things with fetishizing virgins from for the male. Although females can do it for for men, for for boys too. We can imagine Mrs. Robinson having a kind of fetishizing of of the of the male protagonist because, as you said, he's a novice, so you know he doesn't know. Right. Um, same with with males with one with the woman virgin yeah. females. They precisely don't know, and and mm-hmm. and therefore can be imbued with the males knowledge who supposedly is superior and learned and and can introduce them into the uh it's the same for the greeks too right i mean like there's the look at the platonic dialogues all you you don't need to go further than that and and there is this there's the same movements of jealousy and of desiring sort of the the unformed clay to mold the the young man in one's own sexual narcissistic image and, and give him culture and all of that. That's how Freud ends this essay. You know, after talking so much in general about these dialectic of individuals, he finally makes this point at the end that, that in fact, this, this tension between the ego ideal and the ideal ego, right? Between sort of these imaginary identifications that we strive towards being better. And then this, this kind of self-observational cut of conscience, of conscience and guilt and whatever, um, and social anxiety, it's meant to reinforce what he says. Uh, he says, in addition to the individual side, this ideal has a social side. It also has the common ideal of a family, a class, or a nation, which are molar categories, right? To lose right. what we would say, these are global <laughs> categories. It binds not only a person's narcissistic libido, but also a considerable amount of his homosexual libido, which is in this way, turn back into the ego, blah, 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 right? Sublimation and and self-perfection go together in a sense, right? So as we said with the Lydians and the Athenians, it's a store of heterosexual libido is sublimated, right? Because you don't want to fuck your your wife. You just do it to to make more little little men to keep that society going. So it would be the opposite. I mean, there would be heterosexual libido is driven back into the ego for more, you know, yeah. For more object ethexies. I think we've hit a lot of the big points, even some of the little points in passing. I was going to talk about Rousseau and his stuff about self-love. I think that I'll leave that aside because we've kind of talked about it without talking about it. You know, I would just say that for Rousseau, self-love, um, it's, um, well, here more, this kind of, of goes to yeah, it. Go, go for it. So I think maybe this will kind of fills in on that same thread. 
Applying our distinction between sexual and ego instincts, we must recognize that self-regard has a specially intimate dependence on narcissistic libido. Here we are supported by two fundamental facts, that in paraphrenics, self-regard is increased, while in the transference neurosis, it is diminished. And that in love relations, not being loved lowers the self-regarding feelings, while being loved raises them. As we've indicated, the aim and the satisfaction in a narcissistic object choice is to be loved. Further, it is easy to observe the libidinal object cathexis does not raise self-regard. The effect of dependence upon the loved object is to lower that feeling. A person in love is humble. A person who loves has, so to speak, forfeited a part of his narcissism, and it can only be replaced by being loved. In all these respects, self-regard seems to remain related to the narcissistic element within love. The realization of impotence of one's own inability to love in consequence of mental or physical disorder has an exceedingly lowering effect upon self-regard. The main source of these feelings is, however, the impoverishment of the ego due to the extraordinary large libidinal cadexes. I don't know if that necessarily... I think, I think, I think all, of that, I think all of that, that fits in well with, you know... With Rousseau, you have a love of self, and then you have a self-love. Love of self is very close to primary narcissism or, and to self-preservation, you know, because for Rousseau, we share that with all animals, right? We, and then there's what Freud here, uh, what Rousseau calls amour propre or self-love in the other sense, is very close to what uh, Freud's talking about with self-regard. Well, I think that's pretty a pretty good uh, definite uh, or translation of it to a certain extent because for Rousseau, self-regard or self-love in that sense is involves a dialectic with others, with with society, with collective, and even and although it can lead to the creation of higher forms of culture and civilization, it's also potentially uh, corruptive. Right, where we can be caught up in what other think people think about us and and measuring ourselves in other people's eyes too much and thereby sort of losing a certain part of our portion of our freedom or really um, de- deviating away from some of our own uh, ideals towards the good. I think that that's that's the tension with Rousseau and why you know, we have to be a little bit careful about that. And I think with Freud too, he's trying to get at some of the same ideas with this differentiation between sublimation and idealization. And really quickly, and I think this is a good place to end, you know, with sublimation, what Freud is trying to articulate is sexual drives being deviated from their object and and sort of, you know, raised into these higher functions of, society, etc. So sublimation for Freud is always a question of drive, whereas idealization has to do with, with objects, with object choices, with the loved object, and even with our own ego images, right? Our, our, the, that which, with the different temporalities of the narcissism, right? What, what, we, what we are now, what we once were, what we want to be in the future, and then the the offspring potentially to you know that we want to bring into the world that that whole you know the different ecstasies if you will of temporality of narcissism you know that's that's a part of the uh, the idealization and you know I think that that's 
the the question of i mean rousseau could have easily written a, a text called civilization and its discontents it would have just <laughs> it would have just taken on a much more paranoid um <laughs> you know that that's that's why rousseau is, is is a little bit wary about the conspiracy against the individual from the collective that we can get kind of subjugated and and caught up in in this movement whereby i you know our ideals are kind of bastardized and corrupted and 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 then we then we don't remain true to ourselves and we we disfigure ourselves and we don't then we don't recognize ourselves and we really do enter into a kind of psychosis and stuff but that's a totally another thing i mean a freud rousseau uh you know, <laughs> mashup would just be like insane literally so i think we could we could leave it here uh in, unless you had unless you had some maybe some final words or not really. I just think this was a extremely productive, definitely very excited about the, about the chat. I think it went really well. I'm excited for what I people, agree for people to listen and check it out. Yeah, I agree. I thought we hit some, some big points and I had fun. This was a like fun one Good. to do. Good. I, like jump off, had some interesting jump off points. I, I had a lot of fun of too. And I, I think that we should mention to the, the audience that next week we will be interviewing Isabel Millar, uh, about her newest work. It's just published this year. Um, it's the psychoanalysis of artificial intelligence. And you intimated it at the beginning, but that's part of the reason why I was thinking on narcissism could right. through the back door yeah, yeah. dovetail and, and feed into our discussions with her. Yeah, it certainly and does. So, so I really do think that, but, it, but you know, so this again, like I was already looking back to connecting up stuff we had done discussing beforehand and what we've been interested in in the past few episodes and looking forward to this next episode, which we're, you know, we're super excited to, to have a guest uh, on again. And we're hoping to bring more guests on for, uh, for you guys to, you know, to, to hear some, you know, some more different points of view and, and to, to mix it up. Right. Which is yeah. always fun. But that will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off for the week. Of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.